Hey, it's great to be with you on Thanksgiving weekend. I'm grateful for you. I want to start this talk by telling you three stories. As I tell them, try to put yourself in the story, especially when your part appears. Um, you'll know when that is, and you don't have to get into character, because the part I want you to play is just being human. These stories are creation stories, and your cue is the arrival of humanity. Here we go, story number one. On high, the universe was unformed and contained only water. Two beings existed, Apsu, the god representing fresh water, and Tiamat, the god representing salt water and restless oceans, depicted as a dragon. From their union, silt formed, giving rise to other gods who then had children of their own. The chaotic world of numerous gods is too much a commotion for Apsu. Against his wife Tiamat's wishes, he sets out to destroy them all. Not completely successful, Apsu is defeated by his great-grandson, the god Ea. Ea and his wife have a child, Marduk, liked very much by the other gods, but who makes Tiamat angry so that she and her new husband, Kingu, plan to attack Marduk and the other gods. Marduk volunteers to fight for his side if they will make him the absolute god if he wins. He does. And then out of the battle, corpse of the loser, they make humanity. That's you created for the purpose of doing work so the gods won't have to. Story number two. In the beginning, the only God creates all that there is. He creates the heavens and the earth. He brings order out of chaos. By his speech, light comes into existence. Waters are sent to their place. Land appears. Vegetation bursts forth. He calls it good. By his word, the sun and moon and stars are created, creatures of the sea, creatures of the sky and land. He calls it good. And then, God creates human in his own image, male and female. God blesses them and gives them responsibility to live in the world for good. Then God looks at all he has made, and behold, it was very good. Story number three. Three to four billion years ago, life existed in a single cell called Luca, last universal common ancestor. Where that life came from is still a mystery. Over a long period of time, through accidental means, the Luca mutated and came together in new shapes, in bacteria and archaea. Over a couple of billion years, those cells evolved. That is, changes occurred by chance mutation, some of which stuck and became the basis for further development of life. This process by chance led to worm life forms, then to fish-like creatures 510 million years ago. Plants began to form. Fish got legs and crawled onto land. 230 million years ago, through more chance mutation and elimination, land animals evolved, including what we know as dinosaurs. 150 million years ago, birds evolved from dinosaurs, which became extinct 66 million years ago, but warm-blooded, furry animals started to evolve from reptiles which through chance and mutation and adaptation led to apes and human beings as we exist today. We are in a series in Genesis, <clears throat> as you probably recognize, story number two represents what the Bible tells us about our origin. <clears throat> I share the first story with you, the Babylon Enuma Elish, because likely it was one of the creation stories of the cultures surrounding Israel to whom Genesis was originally written. I share the last story with you because in some form, that is a predominant story in the culture we live in today. Well, which is the better story? Which story has the better explanatory power for how the world works and how we intuitively think and operate? Which story is true? 
There's this account about a woman who comes to faith in Christ, but her husband is not quite there yet. One day, tucking her child into bed, the woman tells her daughter the story of biblical creation and how God created us. The girl liked the story, but after said to her mom, but daddy, he told me he, that we came from apes. To which the woman replied, well, dear, daddy was talk, talking about his side of the family and I was talking about mine. The story we believe to be true greatly shapes us. For the Christ follower, it begins in Genesis. Genesis was written to get the story right from the beginning so that your trajectory will be on course. It's, it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know where you start from. And in creation, Genesis gives us some answers to some big questions. As we've already seen, who is God? What is he like? Powerful, creator, good. And today, in the next couple of weeks, questions about us. Who are we? What is our purpose? Genesis 1, starting verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that, go, that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In your Bible, it is likely that verse 27 is indented. The text in Genesis is going from prose to poetry here. The first poem in scripture, in writing techniques, this is like a neon sign saying, pay attention to this, don't miss its significance. In the biblical story, God makes man in his own image. Man is not a product of chance, but design. Now there's a reason why this is highlighted as extra important. The image of God, or the, or the Latin phrase, imago Dei, informs us on how we should understand what it means to be human. Imago Dei touches on the significant issues of value and purpose leading to how we see and treat others and ourselves. Consider value of ourselves. The subject of self-worth has become a staple topic for best-selling books. Everybody knows how important it is to have a high self-esteem. It's impact on mental health, physical health, decision-making, but you can keep writing books about it that sell because it, it's something we so struggle with. And as if we didn't already know it, the evidence is in. Facebook and Instagram are not helping. It's important to have a sense of value and self-worth, but where should we get that from? And what about value in others? Why should I care about you? Why shouldn't I manipulate and use you for my advancement, putting you down so that I can be raised up? The greatest tragedies of humanity occur when other human beings are devalued. At the core of things we now see as reprehensible was, is the idea that those people are less than human. You see it historically in the justification of slavery, the Nazis' cruel treatment of the Jews, the slaughter of the Tutsis by the Hutus in Rwanda. And more recently, you see it in the treatment of the Rohingyas in Myanmar. Facebook was used to fuel the fire of hatred towards this Muslim minority. As Steve Stecklow, an, an investigative reporter for Reuters, examined hundreds of social media posts, finding several of them cataloged the Rohingyas as dogs or pigs. Says Stecklow, this is a way of dehumanizing a group. Then when things like genocide happen, potentially there may not be a public uproar or outcry as people don't even view these people as people. Dehumanization. And yes, I mean, we may not think we are capable of such atrocities, but how many of us are participating in dehumanization in smaller ways through the messages we send or post? Why has cancel culture become a widely recognized 
term. Imago Dei speaks to value. It also speaks to purpose. We long to have cause with meaning. Austrian psychologist and neurologist Viktor Frankl wrote a lot about meaning. Books like Man's Search for Meaning, The Unheard Cry for Meaning. He talks about the difference between a successful life and a meaningful life. Sometimes we feel that if we have only achieved that goal, the financial success, some social success, we would be fulfilled. Yet Frankl examples how the successful are sometimes overpowered by a sense of futility. And Frankl knows something about the importance of meaning. He survived the Holocaust by finding personal meaning in his experience, fostering the will to live through it. He says, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. Value, purpose. Who are we? What are we here for? So God created man in his own image. Genesis declares your value and shows you your purpose. In the Genesis story, human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Plants and animals are each made according to their kind, but man, man is made in the image of God, distinct, of higher value. In God's eyes, all of creation is good, but man stands above it all. As New Testament believers, you may recall the words of Jesus when he puts into perspective our anxiety about current circumstances. As an aside, he mentions our comparative worth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more, how much more valuable are you than birds? Created in God's image, man is distinct and above the rest of creation, but he is still the created. He is not God. We are not God. You are not God. This is the clarity Genesis gives us on our identity. A Jewish rabbi is quoted as saying, we are created in God's image, if you will and we are obliged to return the favor. What he means by that is that although created by God, we have a tendency to make God be what we want him to be, to reflect our likes and preferences into him when it should be the other way around. But in Genesis, we are reminded who has all and final power and authority. The creator has rights over the created. This revelation keeps us from making God in our own image. If you never feel corrected by his word, drawn to repentance, and I would ask myself, am I letting God be God? Or is he just a creation of who I want him to be, placing myself where I should not be? Christopher Watkin in Thinking Through Creation says, we enjoy dignity, but not deity. We are both meaningful and dependent. The image of God motif guides us to a balance between making too much and making too little of ourselves. So how is it that humanity, you and I are created in God's image? In, in what ways are we to be like him? This has often been answered in, from three different perspectives. First, we are relationally like God. That is, we have a relational uniqueness from all other creatures in our ability to love and know and connect not only with each other, but with God himself. Amazing. As God says, let us create man, the word us implies a relationship within God himself. 
And this becomes much more clear as you read into the Bible, into the New Testament. God exists in relationship as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So man is created to be in relationship with God and with others as Genesis emphasizes. Male and female, he made them. Secondly, we are functionally like God. There's something that we do that mirrors God. As God rules, we are to rule. Right after God says, let us make man in our image, he says this, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This touches on man's function and purpose to oversee and manage. Something we'll discuss in, in greater length on another day. Stay tuned. Thirdly, we are substantially like God. That is, we have the structural qualities and capacities that all other creatures don't have, but are found in God. For us to rule and relate in a way that reflects God, we must have a likeness to, to reason and make choices that are morally good, as God is good. Now, there's truth in all three of these, and I think they mingle together in the cultural context for which it was written. Ancient rulers would often characterize themselves as gods or claim to be the image of the gods. I mean, when they have the power, who is going to argue with them, right? The word image in the Hebrew word is the Hebrew word salem, and it can also be translated idol. Rulers would also place images or idols of themselves throughout their kingdom to remind others of their rule. Every time a citizen saw the image, it was a vivid reminder of who was in authority. So as image bearers of God, by our existence, we are to point people to God. We represent God on the earth as co-rulers under his authority. The way that we exist is to be a reflection of God. The way that we relate is to be a reflection of God. The things that we do is to be a reflection of God. At the heart of our purpose is to bear his image. Notice the radical nature of the Genesis story here. This is to be, this is to be not just of a, a special privilege of a ruler. It is to be true of all humanity. Each and every person is created in the image of God with the purpose to carry that out. Along this thought, C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Hey, no matter who you are today, what your past is, no matter what you look like, what your ability is to perform or not perform, how great a capacity you have, no matter how popular you are, how unpopular, how, how unpopular you are, no matter what your race or sex or disposition is, no matter even what you think about yourself, whether good or bad, from the Genesis record, who you fundamentally are is based on what our Creator says about you. Our worth does not have to be sought out. See this poetic neon sign shouting at you in Genesis, made in the image of God. By his declaration, you are most valuable. You are most valuable. This is the opposite of dehumanization and it sets the foundation. Remember, Genesis is about getting things right from the start. It sets the foundation for how we see and treat not only ourselves, but others. In the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it, it begins with the preamble stating, Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Where did we get the idea of inherent dignity for all members of the human family from? Where, where did we get that? 
The American Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, why is this self-evident? Where did this idea come from? Is it certainly not evident from the Babylon Enuma Elish and is not itself evident from the story of evolution? The great proponent of evolution, Darwin, said that different races evolved to different levels with Caucasians esteemed as the highest. Again, the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's the presence of a creator that makes sense of this. The Genesis story has great explanatory power for why we intuitively know that all humans should have equal rights. From Genesis, we know this is wired into us. All of us are created in his image. And so we long for social justice, for equality of rights and freedom for the oppressed and help for the marginalized. And when we see them rightly as human persons, we are moved to protect the most vulnerable of humanity, the unborn. The UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights came out of the response to one of the world's greatest tragedies of dehumanization, the Nazi Holocaust. Led by the medical profession, they first used their gas chambers to kill the handicapped because they were deemed not worth living, and then they killed the Jews. That's what happens when humans make value judgments on other humans. But God declares all humanity equally valuable. All are made in his image. How tragic that human beings made in the image of God would so defame other human beings who bear the same. This is an extremely sad situation the Nazi Holocaust, but it's not an only exception. And whether it is to such a great degree or, or in much smaller ways, reading through the Bible is a story of the image bearers of God seldom living up to their calling of good to others, but rather propagating injustice and evil. But it is also a story in which God himself does something about it. He enters into our world to change the story for good. At the heart of the Christian narrative is that God becomes one of us in the person of Jesus. Colossians 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is called the image of God, the image of God. The creator Jesus steps into our world as a human and shows us what it looks like to live out being human as it was supposed to be. Who he, who he is, like his character can only be described as beautiful. How he relates is love. And what he does as ruler of the universe is astounding, not using his power for advantage, but to lay down his life sacrificially so that we could become a new creation in him. In Genesis, there is nothing humans do to earn being made in God's image. It's simply God's gift of grace. And the recreation of Jesus also is a gift of grace, only to be received by faith. And then as God always intended to live out the purpose to which God has called you, now empowered by his Holy Spirit. Not for success, not for financial advancement or any other goal we could come up with, but to first be like him in all the places he calls you to be. 
knowing that you are valued supremely already and that he not only made you in his image to begin with, but then sent his son Jesus to make you born again through his life, death, and resurrection. There is something recalibrating about hearing all these good things in the story of God. As you hear the story and think on it, as you look at Jesus again and again and again, you will find your motives and desires and character being shaped more and more into his image. This will profoundly affect how we see and treat others as well. Two things I want to leave with you today in that area, and one of them ties into our Thanksgiving offering. First, one of the distinguishing marks of a Christ follower is that we honor all people and demonstrate that with our words. In James, it talks about the use of our tongues. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You will so stand out as you align your perspective with God's to see every person from his vantage point, image of God, a person God loves and values, just like you, so that even when others curse us, we bless. Second, as much as it is possible within us, we work for the good of others, and especially the marginalized and disadvantaged, where there is such a gap between what God wants for them as image bearers and the life that they are experiencing. There are places in our city to serve. There are places here at Central Heights as we minister to our city through ministries like Women's Drop-In and Breakfast at Jackson School and other places. And today we can serve in our financial way through our Thanksgiving offering. My name is Julie Braun and I'm the director of Central Heights Preschool. Central Heights Preschool was established in 1985 Many children have come to this preschool and have learned of the kindness of the gospel of Jesus. And we also very intentionally try to connect families to Central Heights Church because there's so many amazing things that happen here. I'm Amanda Dirksen. I teach grade four or five at Sahel Academy in Niger, West Africa. And I'm a missionary with SIM. Uh, so our school serves children who are there because their parents are doing mission work or their parents are local pastors. Um, but there's also children who are there because their parents are in business um, or in government or various other things. And our school is a Christian school and the country is predominantly Muslim. So we have a huge impact there in being able to share the gospel to our students who are believers and our students who are non-believers as well. Uh, and just being able to show the love of God to them, I think, in a very tangible way by being their teachers, but not just sharing education with them, but sharing our heart and um, love and how do you care for people in different contexts of the world. So in uh, the summer of 2020, we had a massive flood uh, that pretty much inundated our entire campus. Uh, the water was above my head and I'm 5'4". After that, we had to decide, do we rebuild our school campus? Is it sustainable to stay there? Um, and is it safe to stay there with our students if the flood had occurred while we were in session? SIM decided that it was not sustainable anymore to stay there. So uh, throughout this past year, they've been searching for a new property where we could move to, and they've found one. We are raising money to purchase this new property. There is a downside to being established in 1985. The playground was established then too. And yes, it is the playground that we continue to use to this day. It is very well loved, it is very worn out, and it is actually, if I can be honest, in desperate need of being replaced. During the flood, actually, we 
For two weeks after, uh, we were at the river's edge essentially every day gathering supplies and hauling stuff out of our school compound. Um, but also then we were trying to help the people farther down the river from us who were affected greater than we were affected. And several people in those two weeks came up and said to different people working there, why are you doing this? Why are you helping? You're not a part of this community. You're not from this country. You're not even Muslim. Why are you helping? Just because we should, because God tells us to help, because God gives us the resources to help and to love you. And they were, they were, quite often we got the comment, why are you doing this? Why are you helping us? So I'm very thankful to Central Heights Church for highlighting this for our Thanksgiving offering. If you choose to come alongside us and help us with this replacement, we would be most grateful. When I think about it, this playground has been here for 40 years. Wow, what an investment and a blessing it would be for 40 more years to have a new playground structure for children, generations to come, to play on and grow up on. God has called me to teach these students right here, and by teaching them, I'm helping their parents to be able to serve with full confidence, knowing that their children are receiving the best education they could have there. Thank you so much for considering this, and Happy Thanksgiving. Our Thanksgiving offering touches those who are often overlooked and or at great disadvantage. Providing a proper playground for children here, supporting the organization Hope for Women that advocates for the well-being of mothers and their unborn child, the, the Chiang Mai Freedom Project in Thailand serving at-risk women, some of them rescued from the sex slave market, and giving those a new start and blessing the students and teachers of Sahil Academy in Niger after a devastating flood. You can give online today. I want to remind you, you are made in the image of God. You are so valuable. God sent his son Jesus to die for you and give you new life. Live it with him. Live it for him. And know the fulfillment of walking in his purposes for you. You were made for this.